Hello there. You're listening to Zoned Out, or kind of. My name is Rin, and you're about to listen to the first 10 minutes of the first half of a two-part series I'm doing for my Patreon subscribers about the town of Fordlandia, an attempt by the Ford Company to build a city in the Brazilian Amazon in the first half of the 20th century. The core educational episodes of this podcast will always be free. But for Patreon patrons, I do like to do deep dives into more niche subjects like my epic takedown of Garrett Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons I put out in April. This podcast is something I do in my free time, so when I decide to do Patreon bonus episodes, it means I don't have time to do public episodes. So if you felt like the podcast has been on hiatus, it hasn't been, I've just been focusing on bonus content. I am immensely proud of the work I have put into this Fordlandia series, which is why I made the initial prologue episode public, and why I'm making the teaser for this episode extra long. I don't normally do an extended Patreon plug because, I don't know, shame or something like that, but membership is only $2 a month. Along with it come bonus episodes and access to the Zoned Out Discord, where we can all connect further to talk about these things that fascinate us called cities. If you can't subscribe, that's okay. There will always be free episodes available as long as this podcast runs. Feel free to share the show however you're comfortable. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and enjoy the first 10 minutes of Fordlandia. Rise and grind to a halt. Hello to all the dues-paying members of the Zoned Out Country Club Estates HOA. If you are not part of the selective gated community, just know that we have already changed the key code to the clubhouse sauna to prevent freeloaders from taking advantage of our exclusive amenities. This episode will continue our series on Henry Ford and his Amazonian company town, Fordlandia. Last episode, we set the scene for Fordlandia, covering Henry Ford the person, some of his stranger quirks, and his original attempts at town-making in Michigan and Alabama. With that said, let's get into the story of Fordlandia. Again, just as in the last episode, a universal citation for Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City by Greg Grandin. I am leaving out a lot of this story for time, so I definitely recommend the book to learn more about all the interesting characters I couldn't talk about here. Let's start where we left off in the last episode, Henry Ford's Hunt for Rubber. During the 19th century, Brazil had a near monopoly on the global rubber trade. The sap from the hevia trees of the vast Amazon rainforest supplied the world with a seemingly endless supply of rubber, and the Amazon region grew wealthy as a result. The two largest cities on the Amazon River, Manaus and Belém, were among the earliest to be electrified in Brazil. Manaus, with its stunning architecture and luminous streetscapes, was known as the Paris of South America at the time. According to TripAdvisor, that title now belongs to Buenos Aires. I was in Paris for a couple days eight years ago, and honestly, I feel like there are better compliments than being equated to Paris. Call me when a city in another country matches the feeling you get in a suburban Applebee's parking lot at 7.45 a.m., because so far no other country has been able to do that. Then maybe I'll show a little respect. Anyway, by the 1910s, the rubber boom had abandoned Brazil. Actually, it was stolen. What happened is this British guy, Henry Wickham, who was one of many Europeans trying to turn a profit by poaching flora and fauna native to current or former colonial holdings throughout Latin America, Africa, Asia, and Oceania. 
He first tried hunting colorful birds native to Nicaragua to export their plumage to be sold in his mother's shop in London. However, he had poor aim and decided he would be better off poaching things that didn't move, like plants. This brought him and his wife to Santorem, Brazil, in 1871, where they almost immediately fell into poverty. The only reason they didn't leave or die is because a community of Confederate exiles decided to help them out due to their, quote, aristocratic appearance and lonesome, melancholy aspect. In other words, these Confederate exiles who had just lost the Civil War in the United States looked at Henry Wickham and said, look at this white loser, he'll fit in perfect here. In 1876, Wickham would illegally smuggle 70,000 Amazonian seeds back to Great Britain, where he would turn them over to London's Royal Botanic Gardens. Avia brasiliensis is a highly productive rubber tree native to the Amazon and primarily was what Wickham wanted to bring back to London. These seeds would create the hevia stock that the British, French, and Dutch would plant in their colonial holdings around the world. Brazilian rubber could not compete with the exports coming out of Asia and Africa, because it relied largely on wild hevia trees rather than plantation-style cultivation. This is because, in the hevia's native Amazon rainforest, natural predators and diseases had developed that would overwhelm hevia if planted too close together. If spaced far enough apart, the individual trees have a better chance of survival. In Asia and Africa, hevia had no natural predators, so it could be planted closer together, allowing for more efficient cultivation. In 1912, Malaya and Sumatra produced 8,500 tons of latex, while the Amazon produced 38,000 tons. Two years later, Asian latex exports reached 38,000 tons, and by the early 1920s, 370,000 tons of latex was being exported from Asian rubber plantations. Brazil just could not keep up. Henry Wickham has gone down in history as a villain in Brazil, and understandably so. The European colonial approach to local flora and fauna in the global south has always been about claiming ownership of these naturally occurring phenomena, amounting to environmental robbery. The American and European corporations that now patent plants indigenous to the global south today, often preventing local farmers in those countries from cultivating a crop they have grown for generations, are the inheritors of this colonial practice. As British, French, and Dutch rubber production in Southeast Asia solidified its global dominance, it was in 1919 that Winston Churchill, then Great Britain's Secretary of State of its colonies, essentially called for the countries to form a cartel to control the price of rubber. In the aftermath of World War I, the world fell into recession and demand for rubber diminished. This caused an excess of supply and a sharp drop in rubber prices, thus prompting Churchill's idea for a cartel. Of course, American political leadership was outraged at the idea and implored American business leaders to take action to thwart or counteract the Europeans. Then-Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover led the charge, believing that rubber was the choke point of American industry due to the inability to cultivate it locally. In 1923, he held a National Conference of Rubber, Automotive, and Accessory Manufacturers that more than 200 industrialists, including Henry Ford, attended. It was Harvey Firestone of the Firestone Tire Company that you have likely heard of who gave a rousing speech arguing for, quote, rubber under an American flag through the development of an American cooperative association. Essentially, industry leaders would band together to fund the development of rubber plantations in Latin America and the Philippines, a colony of the United States at the time. In this way, they could secure access to cheap rubber and reduce dependence on a possible European cartel. However, most of the business leaders didn't really care. 
Companies like BF Goodrich, Goodyear, and U.S. Rubber worked closely with the British and didn't want to upset the relationship. They also felt that anxiety about securing the rubber supply was causing broader Anglophobia in the United States, or a fear of the English. Finally, their resistance was undergirded by their capitalist class solidarity. They believed in a right to monopoly, and the president of U.S. Rubber even admitted to favoring a European cartel because he believed it was the natural development of a mature economy. They felt they had more in common with British colonial leadership than American consumers because, at the end of the day, they wouldn't be the ones hurt by higher rubber prices. The consumer would. Ford, however, was in full agreement with Firestone. His high ruse strategy was in full swing, and he was bringing various natural resources under his direct control in his supply chain. It seemed natural to him that he should secure rubber in the same way, even if his capitalist contemporaries did not feel a similar urgency. After all, not only was rubber important for his car's tires, but latex also was used for the hoses, valves, gaskets, and electrical wires. By 1930, the rubber industry exceeded a value of $1 billion, or just under $16 billion in today's dollars. 70% of the value came from the manufacture of tires alone. It was after a lunch with Harvey Firestone in the summer of 1924 that Ford began to move forward with attempting to secure his own rubber. Ford had already made some half-hearted attempts at growing rubber in the Florida Everglades. Half-hearted for Henry Ford meant buying a bunch of property in the town of LaBelle and actually trying to plant some rubber figs and rubber vines to see if that was a viable option. It quickly became clear that it wasn't. So Ford ordered his longtime secretary, Ernest Leibold, to research the best locations in the world to grow rubber. You could say that at that moment, Ford's plans truly began in earnest. Leibold threw himself into studies, reading about various locations across Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Simultaneously, Ford finally granted an audience to José Custodio Alves de Lima, Brazil's New York-based consular inspector who had been trying to get a meeting with Ford for two years ever since he heard Ford was trying to grow rubber in Florida. De Lima had received permission from the governor of the Brazilian state of Pará to offer the Ford company a series of tax breaks and land concessions in the hopes they would incentivize investment and revive the region's economy. There was a lot riding on this meeting. Ford was interested in the incentives, but more concerned with his own vision for the site. It was in this meeting that Ford would articulate an initial vision for his Amazonian operation. He was not solely interested in planting and extracting rubber. He wanted the site to be more than a plantation, to have, quote, schools, experiment stations, canteens, stores, amusement parks, cinemas, athletic sports, hospitals, etc., for the comfort and happiness of those who work on the plantation. Ernest Leibold would later return with a verdict for his boss, stating that, quote, rubber should be grown where it originated. While Ford would not move forward for a few years yet on his rubber extraction plans, Leibold's conclusion and the meeting with DeLima solidified the Brazilian Amazon in Ford's mind as the site with the most potential. Despite the region's economic collapse, there was still money to be made in the Amazon, from schemes and cons that preyed on the population's desire to return to the glory days. And so, as Ford turned his attention to the other things, like destroying the cow, a scheme was cooking in the background. The success of DeLima's meeting with Ford was announced throughout the American and Brazilian press, and this gave two guys an idea. 